Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending July 15th, 2023. This week, it's our season three finale, and we finally get to the fireworks factory. Who will live? Who will die? Will Netflix renew us for season four? Can't wait for season four, episode one. That was Reagan in the shower the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Netflix never renews anything for season four. Uh Uh-oh. I'm Kim Hollis, digital advertising guru and owner of the Haunted Mansion Bride Doll that sold out in hours. Its eyes follow me everywhere in the house. (laughs) (laughs) I love her. With me are Tim Bridey, content creator, gamer, and Emmy nominee. Congrats. Oh, thanks. Um, Wait, I'm being handed a note. Um, There is no actual Emmy Award for Best Supporting Podcaster. So wait, (laughs) what the heck? Oh, man. Maybe next time. Mm-hmm. Also, David Mumpower, author of Behind the Ride, streaming media analyst, and someone who has seen 10 movies in the theater this year. I don't want to say it's bad out there, but Regal just sent me a random free ticket this afternoon. That's a real thing that happened. Just please, somebody go to a theater. <laughs> and the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burial, who's mourning the loss of an old friend. I'm really going to miss Hollywood. <laughs> aren't we all david what's happening with the strike well it strikes plural now uh sag after resisted a staggering amount of pressure from their corporate overlords and weirdly hollywood agents and directors and held out for a better deal and a better deal role that just means basically slightly less than inflation right as we all know inflation has hit us hard over the last couple of years something like six percent two years ago seven percent last year combined i can do the math six plus seven that's 13 percent. the union asked for about 15 percent increase on their base rate and eventually they negotiated it down to about 11 percent. no the studios offered five percent And even worse, the actors themselves were offering themselves a pay cut because the instant they negotiated down to 11, they were just saying, fine, we won't keep up with the price of inflation. We'll just go ahead and take less if that's what it takes to get a deal. And the other side still said no. It is really bad out there right now. I mean, everything got worse at the last possible moment when the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers inexplicably but intentionally leaked a story to Deadline about their plan. And it was the kind of plan the villain usually says while laughing and twirling their mustache just before James Bond kills them and then sleeps with the world's hottest nuclear scientist. They wanted the writers to know. They wanted the writers to know that the producer's plan called for all content creators to lose their houses and apartments. That doesn't play that well in 2023. And it left the various power brokers infighting like crazy about whose dumb idea that was. Didn't work. They had to walk it back. And now the writers are more resolved than ever. The whole thing, absurd. Like, I don't even know how this could be our reality at this point. Meanwhile, the actors who politely agreed to a 12-day extension in expectation of a better offer after the July 4th holiday ended, instead received more pressure and equally ludicrous threats. In other words, they waited 12 days for absolutely nothing. There was no serious offer. Nothing changed that justified the delay. There was a last minute attempt at mediation. 
And their idea was, hey, while we're in mediation about this, why don't we go ahead and not have a strike so that we can finish production on all of the television series and movies that we're trying to get done in the rush before this happens? Because we don't care about the strike past a certain point. That's where we're at with this. And now everybody is looking around angry, like, why did we wait if you all were just going to be jerks? And I kind of love the way SAG handled this. I do. SAG looked and said, you know what? Screw it. We will happily go to mediation with you, but we're not delaying the strike. So now they've actually got them trapped in the agreement where they offered mediation and they have to do it, even though it wasn't a sincere offer, which is quite clever on SAG's part. Well, David, I have it on good authority that the uh, strikers are just being unreasonable. Yeah, I guess we should talk about Bob Iger, huh? Or as I'm calling him this week, David Zasloff. Do we want to do that? Does he want to be David Zasloff? Because we can make him David Zasloff. We keep saying never go full Zasloff. And just last, <laughs> I don't know, 24, 48 hours, Bob Iger went full Zasloff. Yeah. So uh, Bob Iger went to the place that has a lot of Disney history. It is the place where Michael Eisner once agreed to buy Capital Cities and ABC along with it and ESPN. Yeah, that's right. The Sun Valley Resort in Idaho. This is the annual billionaires retreat where rich people go to make their deals. That's right. The man is at a billionaire retreat, presumably smoking the world's most expensive cigars, sipping the world's finest champagne, and oh, by the way, in between slight small nibbles of caviar, most of which he'll throw in the trash because it's not quite up to his standards, he talked about the poor, specifically the actors and writers who are being so very disruptive. His word, not mine, and wanted to actually earn a fair living wage. Can you imagine the audacity of these people? Folks, that's one of the most polished Hollywood suits ever, Bob Iger saying the quiet part loud. This week has made no sense whatsoever because smart people are acting like morons. So we are now facing a double strike in Hollywood with both the writers and the actors on strike. Roll, how rare is that? Last time that happened, Ronald Reagan was president, not president of the United States. Ronald Reagan was president <laughs> of SAG. That pinko commie Ronald Reagan was the president of the actors union the last time the actors and writers went on strike at the same time in 1960. The Beatles hadn't even formed a band yet. You would think that there was some potential for a resolution just before the extension at the beginning of July. SAG-AFTRA president Fran Drescher was saying that there was a lot of progress and things were looking really good. But then she got a letter from a number of actors saying, hey, no, we're not compromising. We've compromised enough. It's time for us to get serious about our negotiations. And suddenly Fran Drescher was all like, oh, no, the studios are terrible. No progress. When the extension expired and Fran Drescher came before the press, it sounded like an evangelical revival. She was on fire. I'm surprised that the studios didn't fold right then and there. Look, none of what the actors are asking for is unreasonable. They asked for an increase equivalent to inflation. They asked for an increase in terms of their pension and uh, retirement benefits equal to inflation. They're asking that they not be recorded and then used through AI so that they never get another job again. And they asked, okay, 
This one's a little funny, but they asked for a bonus for when their shows were a hit on streaming. I've often argued that that really doesn't make sense in streaming. You get paid whether your show is a hit or not on streaming, which is more than you would expect in the old linear days when if your show's a bomb, then your show gets canceled and then you don't get any more money. Now you still get money even though your show is a bomb, but they're saying, no, but I want more money if my show is a hit. I actually have a counterpoint to that. There is a fantastic article in The New Yorker about Orange is the New Black, which is one of the early streaming series and the many performers from that show and how very little money they have received as a result of having been on that show. We're talking about residual checks where they will get 40 cents and 60 cents. We're not talking about $40 even, cents. We are talking about people who went to be on that show because they thought it was a great opportunity and it cost them money to be on that show. We're talking about people who get recognized on the street. People know them and come up to them and think they must be very wealthy and they might be working a job in a restaurant. So yes, the primary couple of performers in the show probably are making good money. But when you have a big cast, like something like Orange is the New Black, there are a lot of performers that are not making a lot of money and doing this in hopes of having future career earnings, but also making nothing from it. So I think this is really a goal to protect not the main performers, but the vast majority of performers who are not in that group. Unquestionably, that's a case for why that base rate needs to be higher. Evidently, if you're acting in front of the camera and you're not getting paid enough to travel to the location shoot, that is not a viable profession. And that is why SAG-AFTRA is striking. But the question of residuals based on success, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one because now the only people who know whether a show is a success or not are the streamers themselves, and they will not divulge that information. We say it every week when we talk about the Nielsen ratings. This is the best information we have because they won't tell us what the real information is. So if that's the case, let's say that SAG suddenly wanted somebody to start tracking something. What service would they use? Unfortunately, they're going to use the wrong one. They actually, in their negotiations, offered to base their bonuses on Parrot Analytics. Parrot Analytics bases their data on demand for a show. So it's basically like how potentially popular something is, how much people are talking about something online, like in the social medias. And of course, of course, the studio isn't going to jump at that because that rarely actually translates into real numbers. Unfortunately, the studio has no counter to that. They're not going to come back and say, no, no, use this data instead, because then immediately we all know, OK, that must be the actual real numbers that we all need to be looking at going forward. No one wants to expose what their real data is on streaming. And therein lies the problem. And that is the impasse. We should emphasize just what this means. It is absolutely fair, no matter what that capitalist vulture Raul says, for someone to think, hey, if this exceeds all expectations and performs above and beyond, like let's say the bear season two, that they should receive additional compensation for the fact they've made a hit. That is how Hollywood has always worked. 
It is. You can argue about the degrees. You can quibble about the broad strokes. But generally speaking, when you do well, you get paid more, you get better gigs, blah, blah, blah. Now we're talking about a system where we don't know when that happens because the only way you really know your show is a success is what we joked about at the start is if Netflix tells you, hey, we're actually going to give you a season four, which never happens. You don't know until you get the call saying you're renewed just how well your show is truly doing versus what they say during the early days, which is kind of hard to interpret. This is not a clean program right now for data analysis. And basically, people hide behind algorithms. That's what's happening. And until that changes, all of this is... I don't know. What if we did this? No, we can't do that. What if we did this? It is just like the rest of streaming where nobody really has a firm grasp on how to solve problems. I'd venture to say that in the olden days, in the linear days, there were two ways an actor got paid for a hit on television. Let's look at Friends. First and foremost, yes, there was residuals. The more something gets watched, you get a bigger check. But then there's your contract renewal. You want the cast to come back for seasons eight, nine, and 10? Well, then you're going to have to pay them more. Arguably, that second aspect of negotiation still exists. Now, the residual aspect is the one that, like, how do we make that work so that people are actually rewarded for a hit? And honestly, I don't see the solution there. Now, of course, the studios are pleading poverty here. They say they don't have any money and this is the wrong time to be negotiating because things cost so much. And so, well, it looks like maybe Bob Iger has figured out a way to uh, maybe get some cash. Yeah, I uh, I wrote about this this week. What I said was Bob Iger has announced an everything must go sell. And that is not quite true, but it is true of all linear assets. And basically, I'm going to use a strange analogy here, but it might be something a few people listening to this can relate to. We have a store here in Knoxville that Kim and I love named McKay's. And the idea is it's a digital media and kind of a toy store. You take the stuff that you have in your closet and you go to McKay's and you sell it to them. They give you McKay's credit and then you get more stuff. We do this all the time. We always have a few hundred dollars in McKay's credit. And then sometimes I'll just tell Kim, hey, why don't you run there and just get a, a toy for us. I mean, it is basically found money for us and free gifts. It is free shopping when you do it that way. Bob Iger is going to do the same thing with his assets, which is he realizes the thing we've been talking about. He knows that Paramount is currently wildly undervalued. He looks at Lionsgate. He sees opportunities for some of the IP that they control. He sees this in the video game industry as well. He doesn't have the liquid assets right now to be able to make a move on these things. Unless he sells some of the linear network assets he does have. And that's where the whole thing gets crazy. Bob Iger was basically sitting around a bunch of billionaires at a place that Raul is always joking is the place for what he calls M&A, mergers and acquisitions. And Iger announced, hey, I will sell anything that's not tied down. And hey, we can always untie some of these things if you want them. That's where we're at with this with Disney. And he's talking about ABC. I'm not just saying, you know, National Geographic, which I think there's a real chance Disney sells. I'm talking about actual ABC. And Raul, what do you think about when you hear somebody saying, I will sell something that is dying because it's a no growth business? I think Nexstar is listening and willing to buy. I mean, isn't that exactly what happened with the CW? Yes, it's what happened when Sinclair bought regional sports networks. I don't understand how gullible some of these corporate overlords are that they get convinced that they need to buy these linear assets 
I've gone on at length in the past about this, but essentially we are in the same era now as we were when radio was dying and the networks were transitioning to television. We used to have an ABC radio and CBS radio and NBC radio, and they saw that the future was television. And so they launched television networks and eventually they sold off their radio assets. Now they know that the future is streaming. And so they're selling off their TV assets. It's not going to be long before ABC is irrelevant and NBC is irrelevant and CBS is irrelevant. Now, whether Disney could get something for ABC before it totally collapses or not is a simple question of how good of a negotiator is Bob Iger. And then we have something I call the Elon Musk desperation factor, wherein some people are rich and needy enough that they will spend, let's say, I don't know, a random figure, $44 billion for something that will do nothing but assuage their massive ego and do something to help them with their horrible insecurities. So that's what Iger is hoping for, is that somebody with ridiculously deep pockets will actually come in and make an offer that is absolutely indefensible mathematically, and thereby Iger can take that for stuff he no longer wants and turn around and go shopping for something that he knows is undervalued. And right now, Raul, that's a lot of the stuff we've been talking about on this podcast, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot on the table here. Of course, AMC Networks may be for sale. Lionsgate may be for sale. We've talked about Candle Media as an option. We think Paramount is grossly undervalued. Paramount is trying to dig its way out. They tried to sell BET, but they're asking an unreasonable amount of money. And so far, no one's been dumb enough to give them three billion dollars for BET. So there are options out there. It's simply a matter of how you negotiate that. At this point, I don't think that even the Department of Justice is going to be able to stop the next merger or acquisition. They just got hammered in court because they tried to stop the Microsoft Activision merger. And it looks like that one's going to go ahead. So if that one goes ahead, what's to stop any other merger from happening? And that brings me to cricket. Kim, how tired are you of me talking about cricket? I'm very tired of hearing about cricket and star. Yeah. So here's what happened that was underreported at the time, but is turning out to be one of the most important Disney stories of the 21st century. No joke. Last year, Disney wanted to renew its streaming rights for IPL cricket. These are the rights it acquired as part of the Fox assets in 2019. Disney found themselves in a wild situation where the richest man in Asia, no joke, the richest man in Asia, had the kind of money where he could say, you know what, I want this for my growing business. And so he spent $2.9 billion for an asset he knew he was never going to be able to monetize. This is what we're talking about a lot right now. This is the trouble companies like Disney face where they do not have that kind of money that some people do. That guy has already admitted he's going to lose $1.7 billion out of the $2.9 billion investment he made. He got the rights to cricket that Disney wanted, and then Disney got help them through good money after bad when they went ahead and spent $3 billion on the cricket broadcast rights in India, which they still valued enough for that level. But what they realized was they cannot compete with deep pockets long term. So now Disney is thinking, I'm going to sell part of ESPN, and that's where the whole thing gets wild. Disney is already doing the math for five years from now, for 10 years from now, and they realize they cannot win an arms race 
for sports negotiating rights because it goes up every time, even though it makes no sense that it goes up every time. So Disney is looking for somebody with deep pockets, like, say, the American equivalent of the richest man in Asia, which would be a cell phone service here in the States that is willing to invest just so they can have ESPN broadcast on their phones all the time as an asset or Apple could do that for Apple TV+. Plus. This is the dumbest thing on the planet that you'd have to consider, but Disney is probably going to do it because if they don't, they're going to lose NBA broadcast rights. They will eventually lose all their NFL rights. They will keep losing to people who have money to burn that Disney does not. I do believe that eventually that bubble will burst, but it's going to take some time. And Disney was, doesn't want to be the one who's throwing good money after bad, waiting for the bubble to burst. So it makes sense if maybe Disney were to sell off all or part of ESPN. That is always been discussed as an option for Bob Iger. And the fact that Disney has essentially siloed ESPN would make it easy for that to happen. But of course, another option on the table would be for Disney to sell Star India, which operates Hotstar, the streaming service on which Disney had Indian Premier League until, of course, they lost the rights. That streaming service was very beneficial to them early on where they were able to say, look at all these subscribers we have for Disney Plus because that is how they offer Disney Plus in India. But those subscribers were also paying considerably less than most subscribers elsewhere in the world. And now where Wall Street is much more concerned about revenue than subscriber numbers, if Disney could sell off this company and say, we have earned, I don't know, X billion dollars at the expense of losing X million subscribers, hopefully they get a win out of that and they get a large sum of money, which as David has pointed out, they can then repurpose to then buy something else. To a certain extent, you could argue Disney has thrown this out there in hopes that maybe the same person, Mukesh Ambani, who has a net worth legitimately around $100 billion, will come back and go, you know what? I've already got this half of the cricket rights. I might as well get the other half of the cricket rights. And then I will be Mr. IPL Cricket. This is the type of nonsense you're having to do. And it is taking us back to the era where basically you had patrons, except in this case, the patrons are talking to small corporations because they're as powerful, if not more powerful, than corporations like Disney. Legitimately, what we're describing, this is late stage capitalism defined. That term gets thrown around way, way, way too much, but this really is that. That one person could have a valuation of $100 billion where companies like Disney and Netflix can be, you know, 160 to 190 billion. It's wild. And that's what Disney is thinking here. And if they could get, let's say, a factor of six more than the revenue of Star India or a factor of eight more, we're talking about nine to $12 billion Disney puts in the coffers. And let's be honest, their attempt to expand into India's marketplace role, it's been a failure, hasn't it? It was kind of like a backdoor attempt to enter into the market. I am not ruling out that Disney can come back into India and launch or relaunch Disney Plus there. They just didn't do it the way they should have in that market. And that's exactly right. So if Disney can get, let's just use the total right now of $10 billion for Star India right now, they can always try again later. And right now they can turn around and use that $10 billion to get a better asset in the short term like Paramount, like Lionsgate, something like that that helps them 
so much more in the short term and also consolidates and removes one potential competitor from the streaming marketplace, which is another asset to Disney. In the meantime, of course, Disney has been trying to insulate itself from the consequences of any potential strike. And I think it speaks to how long ago they knew this strike was going to happen, because one of the things that Disney is going to do is they announced that over 20 new Asian originals are going to premiere on Disney Plus in the second half of 2023. That includes some of the content that we told you about months ago, starring the the members of uh, K-pop band BTS. That is Disney continuing to pump new content into Disney Plus, even in spite of the strike. Now, would they have made that deal with BTS months ago if they didn't know that there was going to be a potential strike? I'd wager to say that Disney knew exactly what they were doing back then. And they also are padding their coffers by licensing out their shows. Now, what I've been telling you all along is that it makes sense to have a streaming service for you to have all your shows on it so that people know that this is where you're supposed to go to watch for Disney would be The Simpsons. You go to Disney Plus to watch The Simpsons. Now, Disney has realized that, yes, you can be that, but you can also, at the same time, license your shows out to other people. Channel 4 in the UK has just licensed a slew of content from Disney for their new streaming service, shows that include The X-Files and Alias. Now, Disney's going to be like, yeah, so long as we get to keep those shows on Disney Plus, we'll gladly relicense them to you. They're making money coming and going at this point off of their library content. And in fact, you know, if this strike goes long enough, maybe uh, Disney will introduce the world to uh, how about a Willow series? You know, they should make a series based on Willow. Oh, no. That's totally going to happen, isn't it? One of the shows that they've killed, it's going to come back to life and they're going to present it as new, aren't they? Well, if it's on your homepage, Netflix has proven people will believe it's new. doesn't matter how old it is. This is the Futurama meme come to life of I don't want to live on this planet anymore. (laughs) There is a scenario out there, wildly unlikely because of the tax implications, but there is a scenario out there that at some point, David Zaslav turns around and supports the release of Batgirl and it becomes launch content. I this <laughs> the <sighs> irony is that all this happened the same week that the Emmy nominations were announced. Now, of course, we got all the usual suspects here. Casey Blois at HBO is crowing about how successful HBO was with all their nominations. Don't we call it Max now? <laughs> Let's not get into that. <laughs> Another big winner in the uh, Emmy nominee category was Amazon Studios, uh, which, of course, got nominations with shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I think Tim deserves an award for this one. Jury Duty. Three nominations. Congratulations. And another one that Amazon Studios and their studio MGM are crowing about is Wednesday. Yes, the Netflix show, because it may be on Netflix, but it was produced by MGM. Because it's, what do we call it, Tim? It's a licensing nightmare. That's right. And the irony here is that if the Emmy Awards happen while the strike is on, the actors will not show up to accept their awards. And I'd like to throw in the fact that the Pink Lady's Grease prequel that was banished into the ether, it got (laughs) Emmy nominations. It legitimately got Emmy nominations, which makes me wonder, how does that even work? They can't acknowledge the fact that this thing even exists at this point. Yeah, it's a very minor award. I was double checking that it was actually nominated and it's for something like two nominations for like choreography in a TV series or something like that. Yeah, it is an Emmy award winning show that you cannot watch at all. Anywhere, ever. 
until Paramount Plus is desperate enough for content for them to reintroduce it. I feel like if you took us back three years and we played that version of ourselves, the podcast from today, we would have said we're shutting down the podcast right now and we are never talking about media ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. It's been quite a week. Tim, can we talk about something happy? Can we talk about box office? Uh, Is it happy? I guess. I don't know. It used to be. It used, it used to be, yes. It used to bring us joy. Now, uh, you know, hand wave emotion. <laughs> but yeah, last weekend, we, we talked about how the big winner was Insidious, The Red Door, came in with $33 million for the weekends, which is more than double its reported $16 million budget, because once again, cheap horror is always a winner. It was true you know, before COVID. It's still true now, uh, especially with uh, you know a, a known franchise like like this one. Uh, and then you know, despite the disappointment of Indiana Jones: The Dial of Destiny, did 133 million so far. But this weekend, at least we have something hopefully happy to talk about, and that is Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One, uh, which opened on Wednesday and started out with 15.5 million for Wednesday, and then 8.2 million Thursday. So we are recording this on Friday evening. So that's all we have at this point. That should be a good sign for the weekend. I, I hope. I definitely think it's a good sign. I mean, we we get into this sometimes about what's enough, Mm -hmm. and that's definitely going to be the conversation here. People kept talking as if it was going to do the same thing as Top Gun Maverick, and that was never going to happen. Yeah, no, no, no. These films are great. I mean, it really is quite possibly the best franchise of the 21st century, but they have never been like the box office juggernaut that maybe you would think. Yeah, that's so weird. That Ghost Protocol, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it almost felt like a reboot when they brought that one back, even though you love three, when they brought it back in 2011 with Ghost Protocol in December of 2011 and, you know, had a small opening because that's it's December, but then turned out to be 210 million domestically, almost 700 million worldwide. And that opened the door for, you know, Rogue Nation and Fallout, which also did 195 and 220 respectively domestically, which, which is fine. You feel like they should be bigger because these movies have been such of high quality of the last 10 years. But yeah, no, that you are surprised at how, how little. They, they've earned so this is this is fine this one has a much higher budget and of course they filmed them concurrently the next one will be out june the end of june next year so yeah this is a this is a good start i hope it leads into a a strong weekend but yeah you you would be surprised at how not excessively blockbustery they these movies are even though they're some of the best movies in the last 10 years. The box office is good and it is definitely very, very profitable. But you look at this compared to the Fast and the Furious franchise and you just can't help but wonder, do we even live in a just world when Fast and the Furious is doing this much better than possible? <laughs> you know? Well, we, we might have put the nail in, in that franchise with Fast X, which didn't even get to $150 million, So... Maybe, you know, I would certainly expect Mission Impossible to, to make at least 200 million. Let's say it does 650 to 700 million. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a good enough result for this in your estimation? Yeah, absolutely. It's in line with the other ones in, in the franchise. Not everything can be Top Gun Maverick. Not everything can be No Way Home. This in, is fun. In this day and age, I actually think that would be exemplary. Mm-hmm. all things considered, but it doesn't seem like people perform the an- analysis based on what's happening now, but rather based on what was happening five years ago. In that scenario, it's not going to look as good on Sunday. It's it's not the same environment anymore, and it is hard to accept that, but we need to face that. And yeah, we've had outliers, like I said, you know, with Maverick, No My Home, Huck, I'll throw Super Mario Brothers in there, but yeah, there, it's not everything's going to be 500 million plus blockbusters anymore. It's it's like the stock market. You can't expect you know exponential growth anymore. That's a good comparison. 
comparison because it kind of makes you realize you cannot expect everything to come out to be Amazon or Google. And that same logic applies here. If you're saying, hey, well, if Maverick can do it and Super Mario Brothers can do it, everything can do it. No, those are just flukes. Let's call them what they are. Absolute flukes in the modern era. Yeah, we honestly didn't think we'd ever see anything like that again. And then, you know, we, we were proven wrong, but they are still very much the exception rather than the rule. All right, Tim, now that we've talked about Tom Cruise a bit, let's move into the ratings. Okay, and hopefully we can talk more about Tom Cruise next weekend. Uh, yeah, we have the Nielsen Street ratings for Monday, June 12th to Sunday, June 18th, 2023. Um, I, I don't know how to describe this week. If there's some decent numbers, some some new shows we have not seen before, pretty impressive debut, but let, let's see what we've got. Uh, the top show overall and topping the originals list is Black Mirror from Netflix, 1.3 billion minutes for 27 total episodes. We have never talked about this show on the ratings before because the previous season was in 2019 in basically the the before times uh we have the sixth season of five new episodes dropped on june 15th for this anthology horror series uh and so there's now 27 total episodes counting the uh, special the christmas special they made but not counting banner snatch because i believe that's considered a movie i kind of expected it to see it here it's just something that we hadn't come across before because there hadn't been a new new season as long as we've been doing this podcast till now this is just a three-day number so i do expect it to take a jump next week because this this series is always buzzworthy every time a new season arrives so i expect a bigger number next next week as well uh in second manifest still here 969 million minutes, 62 total episodes, as it concluded bizarrely, and people are just fascinated by the uh, the, the train wreck. Uh, Never Have I Ever returned last week, 832 million minutes for 40 total episodes in third. Ted Lasso sliding down the list as it's completed, 529 million minutes, 34 episodes. Uh, Fubar, a previous winner, 503 million minutes for eight episodes. In fifth, something new in sixth, The Surrogacy, 496 million minutes for 24 episodes. We did talk about it on What's New That Week. It's a uh, Mexican series, and it was kind of, I don't know, depressing. But uh, yeah, I did not expect it to, to see it here. But again, the foreign language, especially shows in Spanish, have tremendous pull on, on Netflix. So yep, here, here it is with a pretty decent decent number. Well, Lord knows if you've got a depressing show on Netflix, people want to watch it. Uh, apparently, yeah, geez. Uh, but we do have something new in seventh uh, from Paramount Plus, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, 338 million minutes for 11 episodes. This is just because the premiere of season two. With, Heck with yeah. Just, but just, yeah, just one new episode arrived on 15th, the second season premiere, and that was enough to get it, get, to get it here. So good job, Paramount Plus. It's actually released weekly and there'll be 10 total episodes. So we might see this one hanging around for a few weeks if it made it here with just just the series premiere. Living up to its moniker as the Star Trek Network. Start Absolutely. <laughs> so that time, not the first uh, Paramount Plus show we've seen make the originals. We saw Picard because, of course, it is the Star Trek Network. But yeah, uh, always always good to see something something new here. Uh, in eighth, Tex-Mex Motors, 312 million minutes for eight episodes. A uh, Another Netflix reality series. Sure, why not? They restore some cars and people can't get enough of that. I don't get it, but you do you. Uh, returning in ninth, Gabby's Dollhouse, 280 million minutes, 51 episodes. This is like the original's equivalent uh, of Coco Melon. I guess it's just always there. And then it just services from time to time during a, you know, when the bottom of the list is hits the lower numbers, it pops its head back up. And I have no ex- other explanation for this show. Originals wraps up with Arnold, the three episode docuseries about Arnold Schwarzenegger, 278 million minutes in 10th. Movies still led by Avatar, The Way of Water, but down from last week, just a little over 1 billion minutes. That's actually surprising 
surprising to me that it, that it dropped in the second week. Yeah, last week when you were talking about it, I thought you were being more pessimistic than you needed to be. I figured it would kind of hover at, let's say, 90% of the range. Mm-hmm. But you were way right, and I was way wrong on this. This is a very significant drop. Yeah, I'm actually surprised by the size of it, to be honest. But it's still enough to edge out the movie in second, which is something new from Netflix, Extraction 2. Uh, also, just over 1 billion minutes. 1,230,000, essentially. Nice. Yeah, this is just a three-day number, actually, that arrived on June 16th. Netflix has their probably their one of their bigger franchises with, with this one, the, the Chris Hemsworth action movie. Yeah, I expect that one will go up. Yeah, this one should be the top movie next week, unless I'm missing something, but I don't think I am. Uh, most of the rest of the list we have seen before. In third, from Disney Plus and Hulu, Flame and Hot, 318 million minutes. So we immediately dropped from 1 billion to 300 million. So yeah, it's another mediocre week in movies. Uh, the Boss Baby, 272 million minutes. Angry Birds movie, 230 million minutes. Also Moana returning in six from Disney Plus, 230 million minutes. Creed 3 from Prime Video, 222 million minutes. Uh, the original Extraction returns in eighth, 216 million minutes. So yeah. Makes sense. People wanted to go back to the to the first one, which was definitely a hit for Netflix. So yeah, uh, I'm totally okay with that. Encanto from Disney Plus in ninth, 168 million minutes. And in 10th, also from Disney Plus, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, 156 million minutes. So yeah, we are bottom of the barrel on the movies list this week. Yeesh. Uh, acquired is 10 shows we've seen before, still led by SWAT, another 1.2 billion minutes for its 128 episodes spread out among Hulu, Netflix, and Paramount Plus. But we know most of that is Netflix because duh. <laughs> Uh, we do have, we've been wondering where this show was for a while, but sneaking back in in 10th is Criminal Minds, credited to Hulu and Paramount Plus, 457 million minutes for 339 episodes. It's about time. Yeah, um, well, it speaks to what you just said, Tim, without Netflix who uh, carried the load here. Right. It was hard work, but hey, congratulations to Hulu and Paramount Plus on making the top 10. Yeah, Paramount Plus actually has four shows on the acquired list. And I mean, to, they're contributing to varying degrees because most of them have Netflix involved. But, you know, they get credited for for SWAT, NCIS, Shameless in 7th, and Criminal Minds. They're having a good week. I do want to like point out just one thing about that that is kind of mind-blowing if you think about it. We have seen Criminal Minds at the top of this list many, many times. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're seeing SWAT at the top of this list. Both of them are available on Hulu and Paramount. Apparently, Netflix is the X factor to the degree of almost 750 million minutes. <laughs> if we're ever looking for a demonstration of how much having it on Netflix matters, this is it. This really is. Yeah, and and even the difference between Criminal Minds and, and NCIS in second, which is Netflix and Paramount Plus, is 250 million minutes. So yeah, Netflix is obviously the vast majority's ratings, that's mostly because of how Nielsen calculates it, but we know, you know, Netflix is the 900-pound gorilla among the streamers compared to everyone else. Because of course, where the hell is The Office? I mean, it's on Peacock, but you know, we have never seen it on these ratings ever since it left Netflix. Well, that's a good opportunity then to point out that Peacock does have a show on the Acquireds list. It's the second run of uh, Yellowstone, which of course mm-hmm. is produced by Paramount. <laughs> of course, it is. <laughs> Oh dear. So yeah, the, so that's uh, 
that's all I've got for the ratings this week. Not much. Uh, I do expect Black Mirror and Attraction 2 to take big jumps next week as we hit late June. And yes, I, I feel like just every time we discuss things on, on what's new, I'm like, oh boy, there's just there's just not too much here every week. So it, when something pops up on the list, I'm unless it's a you know top of the line series, I'm surprised. Well, let's tie that back to the main story for just a second. Bob <laughs> Iger sat there and said, we are not going to release as much content as we have in the past because it strains our resources and it stretches out our talent too thin. So quality, not quantity, really is the theme from now on in streaming, at least for the short term. And also tying it back to our earlier discussion, since we've got strikes in the offing and going on, we may have a long, bad period where it's a lot of reality, terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah, I I definitely expect this to go on for a while. I mean, you guys had enough about the strike and we'll be talking about it probably for the next next couple months, but both SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild are showing solidarity. They're definitely in this together, so this may go on for quite some time. As always, we finish the show with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And David and I did have the opportunity to see the new Mission Impossible film. And it is just, it's fantastic. I have thought that every one of the Mission Impossible films from three on has been terrific. And this one is just riveting from beginning to end. It doesn't feel as long as you know it is. Cruise is engaging. Everybody is just fantastic in the film. I strongly, strongly recommend it. I also finished reading Hugh Howey's Wool. We have not watched the entire Silo series, but I have been reading the first book for Work Book Club, and it's quite good. It's clearly going to go further with this book than what the series is going to be able to achieve in a season. I can already tell they've made some little adjustments here on there. So interested to see what the differences will be between the book and the series itself. But great book, Hugh Howie. Thanks a lot. Uh, Raul, how about you? I have been keeping up on a couple of weekly shows that are must watch the day they premiere. That's the newest episodes of Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount Plus and the uh, Marvel show Secret Invasion on Disney Plus. The uh, latest episode of Secret Invasion, in fact, was spectacular for anyone who was complaining that Secret Invasion has been too talky. Boy, oh boy, there was a shootout in that episode of Secret Invasion that uh, that rivaled anything you saw in in the Winter Soldier. So, yeah, it dialed up the action this week. You bet. But uh, I'm going to tell you instead about Flaming Hot, the movie that's been on the ratings charts for the last couple of weeks on uh, Disney Plus and Hulu. It's a biographical comedy that's loosely based on the man who convinced Frito-Lay to cater to the Latino market and introduced Flaming Hot Cheetos to the world. It's directed by Ivan Laugor. The story of Richard Montañez, who pulled himself up by his bootstraps to create Flaming Hot Cheetos, is largely an urban legend, but reality rarely has anything to do with entertainment. And this movie is entertaining and inspirational. I watch it with my daughter and it kept her attention throughout. So that's definitely a good sign. The cast is largely unknown, but Dennis Haysbert does show up to play Bagger Vance for Montañez and coach him through the ways of the corporate world and an almost unrecognized. Tony Shalhoub plays the Frito-Lay CEO. At roughly 90 minutes, this movie is not a big investment of your time. It's really a fun little movie and great to watch with your family. All right, Tim, what has been keeping you busy? Uh, I mentioned it last week 
because I had just started it, but I am several more hours into Cyberpunk 2077. And I had said I had not met Keanu Reeves yet. I just knew he was in the game. Um, spoiler alert, you are Keanu Reeves. It turns out it through what I was... The, the prologue, <laughs> uh, you end up with sort of, it's hard to explain, with a, essentially a split personality where you are able to then to, at various points, you see his character and you essentially are, are him and he's gradually overtaking your mind and possibly body unless you do something and that just really drives the plot of the of, of the game from, from then on. But then once you get through that and everything opens up, it is a really, really good game. They have fixed the issues that that plagued it at launch at this point because it is you know about uh, almost three years old at this point. Uh, so yeah, I definitely absolutely recommend picking it up. It's no longer on sale because that's because the Steam sale is over. But next time it does, do do pick it up. You know, it's it's your open world game. If you're running across various things happening in the city, there's you know side missions and and of that are varying types of things like you know break in here and kill everybody, or break in here and kill this and pick up this item or drive this person, you know, save this person, rescue this person. Uh, so yeah, no, it's it's definitely worth your your time at this point. They have fixed what was wrong with it. And I'm looking forward to continuing to dive into this world. Awesome. David, how about you? There was a funny moment in MI7 where I noticed Kim sit up in her seat and she was like bending her fingers excitedly. And I was trying to figure out what she was doing. And I realized she anticipated the big stunt that everybody knows about is coming. And I'm so engaged with the movie, I'm not thinking about it. And she's just like, oh, it's going to be soon. It's going to be soon. It's going to be soon. And then she was all but like literally leaping out of her seat with joy when it happened. So I can confirm she was just wildly crazy about it. There were a couple of things, one of which, if you know me, would be obvious. I did not like about the film which is not something really I say about Mission Impossible films, at least not since, you know, John Woo quit directing them. I understand the reason for it, and I suspect it was like there wasn't a choice involved, but I still wasn't crazy about it. And uh, I felt the length a little bit more than Kim did, but I would put it on a par with Fallout, which means I don't like it as much as 3, 4, or 5, but Fallout's still a solid A for me. It's in A, A-plus range somewhere in there. So it's, you know, the fourth or fifth best Mission Impossible movie is still one of the best action films you'll ever see. That's where I am with this highly recommended and it's remarkable when you remember Tom Cruise's career was in tatters. I mean, after he jumped on Oprah Winfrey's couch, nobody believed he would ever get it back again. And now he really is just the pinnacle. And I had the thought midway through the film, they either need to get Keanu Reeves in a Mission Impossible film or Tom Cruise in a John Wick film that needs to happen so we can settle the score once and for all. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Streaming Void. Be sure to watch for us again next week. <laughs>